The army doesn't like more than one disaster in a day. Looks bad in the newspapers and upset civilians at their breakfast. The British Army. Those famous redcoats alongside the cavalrymen, the green-clad riflemen, the engineers, the artillery. They became surprisingly adept at fighting small wars of empire during the Victorian era. We fought war after war and we beat enemies across the globe. But it wasn't all one-way traffic. Yep, I know it's painful, but there were quite a few defeats for the British Army. Today we're looking at five times the British Army were defeated during the Victorian era. You might be able to guess some of these defeats in advance. Some are pretty obvious, some might surprise you. What do you think we will consider as the worst? Sirs, moms, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, the place for people who love British military history and a damn good story. Before we get stuck into today's episode, I just wanted to take two seconds to flag that I've now started a Patreon account. Yep, if you sign up at patreon.com slash redcoathistory, you get early access to all of my YouTube videos and there is no advertising, so I thought you might like that. Plus, behind the scenes, photos and videos of me on location, what books that I'm reading, that sort of thing. It's a great place for us to keep in touch. I reply to messages very, very quickly on there, and if you join, it'll be really great. It's all part of a strategy just to diversify the page a little bit, not rely purely on YouTube. I like YouTube and it's a really great place, but you never know when they might turn around and say, actually, we don't like military content anymore and we're banning your channel. Anyway, let's hope that doesn't happen, but the Patreon is there, patreon.com slash redcoathistory. All right, guys, let's crack on. Crushing military defeats obviously gain a lot of attention. In fact, we Brits do seem to enjoy celebrating our glorious defeats almost as much as our victories. But... As Dennis Judd wrote, the fumblings and failings of Victorian military history do not, of course, outweigh the success, since for every Majuba Hill there were any number of Omdurmans and Alundis. Yet it is the disasters which reveal British military inadequacies in their starkest light. So today we're going to count down from 5 to 1 the worst British defeats of the Victorian era. This list has been created by myself and my good friend Dr Chris Bryce. There's a link for his books below. It is, of course, only our opinion. You may have other ideas, so do comment and let us know. Coming in at number five is the Battle of Maiwand, fought in Afghanistan in July 1880. Now, this might be the first surprise and you perhaps don't know much about it, so let me try and fill you in. The Battle of Maiwand was part of what is generally called the Second Anglo-Afghan War. The battle took place on the 27th of July 1880 near the village of Maywand to the west of Kandahar and not too far from Helmand, a place well known by British soldiers of the modern era. In fact, I've been shot at there myself. Now the background to this battle is damned complicated, so let me try my best to explain. In July 1880, Abul Rahman became the new ruler of Afghanistan, but with Kandahar under the rule of another man, Sher Ali Khan. Meanwhile, yet another chap, Ayub Khan, ruler of Herat, wanted to extend his rule to include Kandahar. Very Game of Thrones all of this, isn't it? Sher Ali Khan asked those stand-up chaps, the British, for support, and Major General James Primrose, commanding British forces at Kandahar, dispatched a force of about 2,600 men under Brigadier General George Burroughs to support him. On the 3rd of July, 1880, the column set out from Kandahar. Although small in number, they were supposed to be supported by 6,000 British-equipped Afghan troops, supposedly loyal to Sher Ali Khan. But as it happened, most of them deserted to the enemy. Not a good start. Burroughs' infantry consisted of the 66, later the Berkshire Regiment, equipped with Martini Henrys, 
and two regiments of Bombay Native Infantry, the 1st Grenadiers and the 30th aka Jacobs Rifles, both equipped with Sniders. So all those British troops did have breech-loading weapons. There were two cavalry regiments, the 3rd Bombay Light Cavalry with 260 sabres and the 3rd Sindh Horse 200 sabres. The artillery consisted of six 9-pounder rifled muzzle loaders of the Royal Horse Artillery along with six smoothbore guns previously captured from the Afghans and crewed by men of the 66, a task I'm sure those infantrymen did not relish. Facing them was an Afghan force who, yep, was considerably larger. Exact numbers are hard to come by, but it's estimated there were probably around 25,000 of them, including around 10,000 regular cavalry and infantry and 36 guns. The rest of the force were mainly local tribespeople, but as we know from our own recent wars, those lads are tough lads and they don't mind a scrap. Now, on the face of it, you'd look at the two forces and think the odds were very much against the British, as they were outnumbered almost 10 to 1. But in terms of technology, discipline and firepower, you have to say that the British did have the advantage actually. Although some Afghan troops did have the more modern Snyder, most of them had old-fashioned muzzle-loading muskets. Also, Burroughs' six nine-pounders should have outgunned any Afghan ordnance. Therefore, it seems that the British victory should have been on the cards. Let's face it, these British infantrymen were used to being outnumbered, that was nothing new to them. In fact, I think they kind of liked it. The British advanced in baking heat over a flat, desert-like landscape with shimmering stones and dry watercourses. But what General Burroughs didn't realise is that he was marching his men into a trap. Whilst he believed the enemy to be at my wand, the Afghans had in fact worked their way undetected around the northern slopes of some hills that overlooked the plain. The first he knew of the enemy presence was when his cavalry was engaged by skirmishers. Burroughs quickly moved his men into formation, but he had already been outmaneuvered and put in a bad position. He was now outfought on a tactical level. The Afghan cavalry made a feigned attack and retreat on Burroughs' right front. Burroughs fell for the gambit and depleted his already small force yet further by detaching two guns of the horse artillery and a squadron of cavalry in pursuit. He then followed this up by ordering the rest of his force to advance in line to support the cavalry. While this did follow the tactical doctrine of the time in India, i.e. always attack, it actually was a really bad decision. He left the relative protection of a ruined fort and village that he had occupied and exposed his force to enemy fire. The undulating ground as he advanced as well also meant he couldn't really fire upon the enemy properly and his own troops were terribly exposed to Afghan fire from all sides. By advancing he was also negating the superiority of his nine-pounders and moving then to within range of the enemy guns which outnumbered them. A bad mistake. You can see where this is going. It's not looking good. It was now that Ayub Khan unleashed his cavalry and those fanatical Ghazi tribesmen charged forward. Burroughs attempted to counter the attack by sending parties to clear the enemy from the hills, something he should have done sooner, but they would beat him back. It now became a retreat, almost a rout. Units became detached and separated. The British and Indians put up a gallant defence, firing until the ammunition ran out and then engaging in hand-to-hand -hand combat until overwhelmed. 100 men of the 66 made a determined stand in a walled garden and were attacked by virtually the entire enemy force. Imagine 100 men versus 20,000. That makes Rourke's drift almost seem like child's play. Okay, bit of an exaggeration, but you know what I'm saying. They defended their position until there were only 11 of them left. Then, in a final act of defiance, they fixed bayonets and charged the enemy, wiped out to a man. The British lost over 1,300 officers and men along with all their guns and over 2,000 horses and transport animals. So those losses were bad, but there were worse losses during the era in terms of casualties. So why are we including my wand? Put simply, because it's a defeat that shouldn't have happened. 
Burroughs, while acting with great personal bravery throughout the entire battle, was outthought and outfought. He was basically outgeneraled from start to finish. He wasted all of his opportunities and his superior artillery. There was much agitation about the defeat, both in Parliament and the press. Maiwand was considered a major embarrassment and defeat for the British Army for many years to come. Okay, number four on our list. What is it I hear you say? Well, it's the charge of the Light Brigade. It had to be on the list really, didn't it? I mean, my lord, there's even a film about it. Will you execute Lord Raglan's orders, my lord? It's the example of military incompetent that most readily springs to mind, even with people who don't study military history. This is worse than the charge of the Light Brigade. But it also captured the imagination as a piece of heroism as well as stupidity. Tennyson's famous poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, of course. There's not to reason why, there's but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Most of you probably already know the story, but let's just briefly fill you in. We're in the Crimea War of the 1850s and at the Battle of Balaclava on the 25th of October 1854. The British staff observe that the Russians are attempting to remove their horse artillery. Seeing an opportunity to prevent this and possibly take the guns, an order is dictated for the Light Brigade of Cavalry to charge. Let's face it, this was exactly the sort of task Light Cavalry exists for. The order is reported to have read, Lord Raglan wishes the cavalry to advance rapidly to the front, follow the enemy and try to prevent the enemy carrying away the guns. Troop horse artillery may accompany. French cavalry is on your left. Immediate. This was given to Captain Lewis Nolan to take to Lord Lucan commanding the cavalry division. Exactly what happened to bring about the calamitous chain of events is debated and we'll never know for sure. The order was a bit vague to say the least. And from his position, Lord Lucan could not see the guns withdrawing and was unclear exactly what guns were being referred to. Attack, sir! Attack what? Attack where? The supposedly excitable nature of Captain Nolan didn't really help either. And it's reported he waved an arm vaguely in the direction of the Russian guns when asked which the order referred to. So Lucan made the terrible mistake of ordering his men to attack the guns that he could see, which were not only manned, but supported by infantry. Even Lord Cardigan, commanding the Light Brigade, hardly the most intelligent of officers, is said to have questioned the order. But despite having questions, the attack went ahead. Between 600 and 670 men of the Light Brigade charged at the wrong guns. They were shot to pieces. But remarkably, some lucky and brave men made it through the enemy line, only to find out they were then hopelessly outnumbered. The official returns gave 156 dead or missing and 122 wounded giving total casualties of 278. Almost equally as important for a cavalry unit, they lost almost 500 horses, meaning they were destroyed as a fighting force. Given that they'd just charged a strong defensive position, it's actually surprising more men weren't killed. The charge was both an example of discipline and heroism, whilst at the same time an example of incompetence and military stupidity. Perhaps it was summed up best by French general Pierre Bosquet. C'est magnifique, ce n'est pas la guerre, c'est de la folie. Yep, I don't speak French, but hopefully those subtitles helped. If you're listening to the podcast, I said it's magnificent, but it's not war, it's madness. Like others on this list, the charge wasn't the worst in terms of casualties, but it makes the list because of the lasting impact it had upon the army, society, and our cultural memory. Number three. This is a battle very close to my heart, one we've discussed at length on this channel, the Battle of Isandwana, 1879 in South Africa. Now it won't be a surprise that this has made the list, but perhaps you're wondering why it's not higher up. In the same way that the charge of the Light Brigade captured the imagination, Isandlwana is often considered one of the worst defeats of the period, and of course is still well remembered because there's a movie about it. 
Isangwana was of course a shocking defeat, but I think what made it worse for the British is that it was against what they would have described as a native enemy. The Zulus were viewed as an uncivilized and technically backwards people. While they did have firearms, they still preferred their traditional weapons. They had no artillery and no cavalry, and yet they were an excellent body of light infantry with tactical and strategic abilities that shouldn't have been underestimated. And yeah, I think it's fair to say that the racial prejudice of the time made the British really underestimate them. The British commander was Lord Chelmsford. His decision to split his force was unsound in many respects, but understandable as he was trying to seek out the main body of the Zulu army and bring them to battle. The problem was that he wanted the battle fought on his terms. He forgot that the Zulus got a say in when and how the battle happened. Having left a large force in the camp at Isandwana, including the majority of the 1st Battalion 24th Regiment of Foot, plus ordering Colonel Durnford's horsemen to join the camp, Chelmsford would have assumed it was perfectly secure. But as we know, it wasn't. Had they taken up a proper defensive position at the foot of the mountain, maybe even prepared sangers in advance, or even formed a large square, such as they would later do at Alundi, things might have been different. Like at Maiwand, the British were tactically and strategically beaten. Official British casualties were over 1,300, and there were very few survivors. I have done videos about the survivors' accounts though, so check those out on my Zulu War playlist. The shock of the defeat echoed around the world. It was a decisive defeat suffered by a modern army against a native force. It was an embarrassing and crushing blow to British prestige. It also showed the neighbouring Boers that the British could be beaten, a change that was to have repercussions across the region for decades. Rourke's drift, of course, restored some of the British pride, and Olundi showed what might have been had Chelmsford not underestimated his enemy. Lessons were learned from Isandwana, but at a heavy price. Okay, we're nearly there. We're at number two on our list, and this one is... Da, 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 the Retreat from Kabul. Chris Bryce and I were unsure what to call this, actually. The original thought was the final stand at Gandamak, but in reality it's the entire retreat from Kabul in January 1842. That final last stand was the culmination of a humiliating and catastrophic defeat for the British Army. For those of you who don't know, we're talking about a war that's commonly known as the First Anglo-Afghan War. The aim of the conflict had been to replace the King of Afghanistan with Shah Shuja, who was more agreeable to the British. As a border territory to British India, Afghanistan was also always viewed as something of a threat to the peace and security of British India. The Brits had invaded in late 1838 and for about two years things had gone quite well. Families had come to join their soldiers who were based in Kabul and the camps weren't particularly heavily defended. Cantonments were open, people could come and go. But towards the end of 1841 things began to change. At that time, the British slash Indian garrison consisted of four infantry battalions, one regiment of cavalry along with some irregular horse, two batteries of artillery and three companies of sappers. On the 2nd of November 1841, the British political agent Alexander Burns was killed. I've made an entire film about the fascinating life of Alexander Burns, so if you want more info on him, please watch that. An angry mob soon now turned into a broader uprising against the British presence in Afghanistan. Over the next few weeks, the outnumbered Brits in Kabul tried to negotiate a way out. At one of the negotiations, William McNaughton, the British envoy, was murdered. The British had no choice but to swallow their pride, abandon Kabul, and retreat towards British India. On the 2nd of January 1842, they set off. But it was a terribly cold winter with deep snow. The Afghans immediately began to attack. Alongside the 4,500 British and Indian troops were numerous women and children with a large entourage of camp followers. 
it was a cumbersome force to move in any form of orderly withdrawal along narrow mountain passes. They were under almost constant attack. At one point, a small detachment held off the enemy at the Khord Kabul Pass and gave the fugitives a chance to put some distance between them and the Afghans. But despite this bravery, soon the force got whittled away. On the 13th of January, a final stand was made at Gandamak by 20 officers and 45 soldiers of the 44th East Essex Regiment. At the top of the hill, they formed a defensive position. When they ran out of ammunition, they fought off attacks with sword and bayonet until finally overwhelmed. Only one man from the entire column that had set out from Kabul finally made it to safety. Just think about that for a moment. Only one man from thousands. Crazy, isn't it? He wasn't the only survivor of the retreat. Many were taken prisoner, but he was the only European to escape. Many Indians and their families were captured and made slaves, and some of the whites who had been taken prisoner were later released. The retreat from Kabul had a profound effect on British prestige in the subcontinent. It was the first defeat of the British of the modern era. It had a lasting effect on British thinking and also, and this is very important, the way Indians started to think about them. It showed British leaders weren't infallible and that they often made mistakes. This indirectly would lead to wars both against the Sikhs, who now felt they, you know, they had the measure of the British, and of course the Indian Mutiny of 1857, because those sepoys had realised that the British didn't always have their best interests at heart. More importantly even, it also started a long period of interference in Afghan affairs, necessitating future conflicts and interventions, something that of course we still know about today. Okay, pot pickers, we've reached the top spot. What do you think it is? It's the Battle of Majuba Hill during that Transvaal Rebellion, the First Anglo-Boer War. I intend to seize the crest of the Majuba under cover of darkness and from there mount an attack. Majuba is another battle that we've covered at length here on Redcoat History, but it's a fascinating and disastrous one. In fact, you could go further than just listing Majuba. You could say the entire First Boer War of 1880 to 1881. All of it was a disaster and we never won a battle. I've done an entire documentary on it, so do check that out. The final battle of the war was Majuba Hill, which came on the 27th of February, 1881. The night before, the British had climbed the hill to secure it. A force of around 400 infantry without any artillery support reached the summit and seemed to be in an unassailable position with the Boer enemy down below them. But the position wasn't quite as strong as its elevation suggested. There was dead ground that allowed the Boers avenues of approach. The British soldiers didn't have the right entrenching tools to dig trenches. The men were far too spread out and the units were mixed up and intermingled. This had an impact on command and control, of course, and morale. Soon they discovered the incredible accuracy of the Boer marksmen. They were picked off and then forced back down the mountain. While the two sides were fairly evenly matched in numbers, probably about 400 each, the casualties were very unequal. The British had 92 killed, of whom 5 were officers, 131 wounded, of whom 8 were officers, and 57 taken prisoner. There were two missing. 71% of British officers were either killed, wounded, or captured. The figure for rank and fire was 46%. I think that shows two things. One, of course, what we already know, which is that British officers have always been incredibly brave and willing to put themselves in harm's way. But secondly, just how good those Boer marksmen were, especially at picking out officers at distance. Command and control had been destroyed and the battle was disjointed. But what about the Boer casualties? One killed, six wounded, one of whom died later of his wounds. The British commander, George Pomeroy Colley, lost both his life and his reputation that day. But it's worth remembering that he had been considered one of the army's brightest up-and-coming officers. 
He was a man who'd been first in his year at Sandhurst and then graduated from Staff College top of his year, having taken only 10 months to complete what normally took two years. Perhaps he should have stayed to finish his course, because he might have learned a bit more about irregular and asymmetric warfare. Alright, I'm being harsh, I'm joking. Majuba was by any standards of course a crushing defeat. British military history is full of examples where early engagements are lost, but the war is won. Majuba marked a low point in British military history as that didn't happen. The battle forced the British to sue for peace. It stung the British army and the cry of avenge Majuba was a rallying call during the Second Anglo-Boer War 18 years later. And this is perhaps why this battle is so important, because it made the Second Anglo-Boer War almost inevitable. The Boers believed that they could now assert power and that they had the measure of the British. They didn't therefore greatly fear another conflict. It also left a certain section of the British political and military establishment spoiling for another crack at the Boers. It was considered a mark of shame against the reputation of the British army. Indeed, although the British did initially learn an important lesson about their poor musketry or marksmanship after the battle, the lessons were soon forgotten. So that by the time the Second Anglo-Boer War came along, it had been concluded that the problem had purely been poor leadership and execution of plans, rather than faulty tactics and doctrine. In 1899, those lessons needed to be learned all over again. But that's a story for another day, and one I can't wait to cover. Special thanks again to Dr. Chris Bryce. I'll be back with another episode next week. Please comment, like, subscribe, and share this episode with anybody you think might be interested. Let's help this channel to grow. Let's get British military history back up there as something people are interested in and want to study.